I think in order to make a movie these days, there has to be some sort of co-involved. Um, you know, whenever you look at movie credits, there's like 10,000 producers. Hi, and welcome to Best in Fest. I'm Leslie Lepage, the founder of the La Femme International Film Festival, and this is a podcast for everyone who wants to learn more about making films and content for TV and film. So for those that listened in on our last podcast, this is part two of that very interesting finance panel that we hosted at the La Femme International Film Festival in 2022. Uh, enjoy the rest of that panel in part two. I think it's important. I just want to ask about gap financing or bridge financing and any experience that any of you guys have had with that. And, you know, what are the circumstances that's easier to get it and et cetera. So does anybody have any thoughts on that? I can jump in on the bank side, unless someone wants to talk on the private side. Uh, so the banks are incredibly, incredibly adverse to any kind of film financing. So up here, the only kind of paper they will back is essentially government signed papers. So your grants, even on the tax credit side, it's kind of, they'll, they'll do up to a certain portion they're comfortable with. So you have to be very careful with how you're doing it. So what we found, I mean, it's very specialized on the bank side to actually do it. But what we found that you need to really think about as a filmmaker is your cash flowing throughout the entire project and where that gap comes in because you start paying interest on day one of the gap, but you also have closing fees on the gap. There's always that built into it. So when we were working through our last project, which did have a substantial amount of gap financing because we were financing um, two of the different funding bodies who are paying because they do in tranches based on what your project is, we were literally looking at like, how do we minimize the amount of gap and roll that cash back in as quickly as we can to lower that uh, money going, basically just burning money and giving interest to the banks. Um, in terms of closing that paper, uh, they were very, very specific on what they wanted to see from the soft money side, because most of this came from soft money, and they were less concerned about the equity being put in by the partners or the additional capital, because they looked at that, it's like that's pennies next to what you're doing as you're juggling the rest of the cash flow through. So you literally had to present to them your cash flow as well as the payment terms, the repayment terms from um, the different uh, funding bodies, and then how those payment terms interacted with your timeline on your delivery of your content. So we just literally paid out, we finished paying out the bank, I think at the beginning of this year when all of the stuff got signed, which was a nightmare since we started the project in 2019, but we managed to still keep it very low because we were consistently pushing the money back in as soon as it came in. So we were financing off of what we, or we were cash flowing off of what we knew we needed and we didn't take the entire allotment up front. We just rolled it as we needed to roll it through the budget. That's great. Anybody else? Dan? Yeah, a um, couple of points. So um, on the issue of tax credits, which is kind of related. So um, just to be clear, just it could be up to a year, a year and a half after you submit your paperwork to the tax credit authority before you actually get the credits. So this is another situation where you may have to go to a bank or a private lender and say, I'm getting X number of credit. I need you to lend me the money so I can make the film to get the credits. Uh, so what happens is you lose a bit of that credit 
to the lawyer's fees, the points, and the interest to the financier of those credits. That's one thing. So you need to be aware that when you're, if you're basing your financing on tax credits, they're going to come in maybe well after the release of your film. Again, depending on which state or, or authority it's coming from. Uh, the other issue on gap financing, um, you know, I don't know at the, at the smaller budget levels if it's a realistic idea to do a gap financing. Uh, a, because the amount of paperwork involved may gobble up the entire amount of, of whatever gap is involved. Um, you're, again, you're losing money because you're paying interest. It's not going to end up on the screen. And there's just a mountain of paperwork that comes with securitizing and documenting that loan. Um, so, I mean, if the, the you know, other alternatives to gap financing is try and find people who might give you in-kind services in exchange for equity in the film uh, to cover your post uh, or, you know, any portion of the, of the production. Uh, you know, and again, understanding the cash flow, like uh, as John was, was saying, understanding the cash flow of where your money is going and when it's going to go there um, ought to give you a, a better idea of, of when and how uh, your cash resources need to be in place. Anybody else have anything to add or? You yeah, know? One quick little anecdote, which I just was reminded I've parked it far far in the back of my mind so at the beginning of um shooting happy fucking sunshine we were trying to close all the financing and we were about three days two or three days away when we got an answer back from the bank that they were going to finance until we had x amount of dollars in our bank account which we didn't because we were rolling all this capital through so i literally scrambled i'm like who do i know that owes me a favor or i've done really well for and i called some of the producers i released their films for and i'm like listen we need X amount of dollars just in a bank account, literally for 48 hours or even like a week. What can you do? And I literally, on my first phone call, my friend of mine was like, sure, okay, I will get you a check for $50,000 and we'll get it transferred to your account literally same day. And like literally sent him over a piece of paper, told him we're gonna pay him back right away. And it was like written up by one of my partners. I think it was like seven or eight lines. This is the payment term. Three days later, as soon as every the transaction finished, we sent him back the money, sent him a bottle of Cristal, closed off the deal. The cheapest, cheapest money I've ever gotten was a bottle of Cristal. <laughs> I love that. But, you know, I mean, those are the kind of stories we all love. Does anybody have anything else like that to share? Or Okay, so I think we're good with this. So, you know, let's talk about um, co-productions a little bit. Um, you know, like, um, you know, for somebody that has set up like a co-production, what have been the um, elements that you had to begin with? And, you know, and how did you kind of put it together? I mean, I think Jonathan, you know, talked a bit about that with the financing in Canada, but does anybody else have anything to share about that or? When you say co-productions, Deb, are you, I mean, you know, I think in order to make a movie these days, there has to be some sort of co-involved. Um, you know, whenever you look at movie credits, there's like 10,000 producers. And I always kind of look at it almost like a chain link fence where every link may not have brought as much to the table, but without them, 
you wouldn't have your movie. Um, and I think that, you know, you're, you're looking to co-produce with potentially, you know, like, um, when you were mentioning Jonathan, um, I used to do co-productions with Canadian companies because they really had access to so much money in their tax credits. So we, as the U.S. entity, would do all the development. Um, a lot of times we would cash flow the movie and filter it through a unique scenario that was put together by a bunch of people who got paid a lot of money to figure out how to break those rules, um, you know, and you're co-producing to take advantage of opportunities that other people have. Um, I also work with another group right now where they bring money to the table. They bring will and desire to make movies, but they just don't have the relationships. So like they'll come to me and say, can you get us distribution? Can you get us talent? So they may have the money, um, you know, so, so those are the kinds of co-productions I've been involved in and probably, you know, some others where if you do have a distributor on ahead of time, they're going to be one of your co-producers or co-execs. Um, but I think that basically it's just, you know, finding who's got something to bring to the table, joining forces and, you know, putting that puzzle together. So under what circumstances do you think somebody would get like a minimum guarantee? up friends you're selling something that's cast already um you know for me i've had the most success as a sales agent in getting minimum guarantees for animation um for whatever reason and that was a couple years ago so i'm not even sure it's still the same case but i think it is um but it is you've got to have a script somebody likes a cast they like and a team of you know a director they like um you know and and a grown-up on set that knows how to deliver uh which is something i find lacking a lot uh but i do think that that is kind of important is really you know at the end of the day cast in my eyes sort of proofs your movie um it gives them something to sell it puts a value on it because you know I don't really use this, but there's a um, there, there's a website, I forget what it's called, but it, you know, it gives numbers and it attaches numbers to different people and everybody has a different number of what they bring to the table. And if your project has a 10 out of 10 or whatever the number is, they look at that as valuable. Um, I, that to me, in a way, the theory behind it makes sense that if you've got a cast that's marketable, you've got a director who can deliver, you've got producers who've done this before, um, and other elements that make sense, those are all just pieces of the puzzle that make your movie a full movie. So the fuller your movie is, the more likely you're going to get, you know, minimum guarantees which is having distribution and somebody who's willing to go out and pre-sell your movie and knows they can. I am not a fan of full pre-sales, but I'm a fan of selling two to three territories, um, which is kind of proof of concept, because if you're mixing, you know, private equity and you've got three territories, you've got a whole world, you know, beyond those territories that you can recoup from. So, you know, if you have investors putting up 50% and then you've sold everything, where, where are the people going to get the money back from? So you have to sort of really cherry pick maybe two really solid territories to, um, you know, pre-sale and prove that your movie has value. Anybody else have anything to add on this subject or? 
I, I can jump in on two unless someone's got I, the co-production side in terms of working with other companies that are local. Um, from our point of view, it's always what uh, creative do they bring to the table? Because if someone's going to organize the business and we own the IP, we always organize the business ourselves around the IP. And then the partners that we're bringing in, for instance, on our next title, which looks like it's going to be like a live action animation, um, horror live action animation, the company that we're bringing in, they're bringing in both the creative in terms of the look and the style, but also to help us with the writing for the animation, which is a value add. So as a co-production partner, that this is within country, like within Canada, that makes sense. Now I've been working on um, international titles. So I have a couple titles actually out of the Ukraine where there's a big chunk of money already financed to it. But when we looked at how to actually put the money together and to do this as an international co-production, and this is also tried to do this with films out of India and some out of the Middle East, it never made sense because the money, as soon as you have the transactions going between the borders, if you're looking at like a one and a half to two and a half million dollar film, it does not make any sense because you're spending $150,000, just on the legal fees and the bank setup fees to make it work. So now our, our whole position is if it's under that amount, it's like, okay, we need to move it into our territory because at least we have control over it and can actually get the project executed. And that's how we're building it. So now it's the financing is outside of the country for those kind of pictures. And then it's structured within the country that we're comfortable working in. Uh, that might be helpful for some people. Anybody else? Any, anything yeah. to add? I just had a thought and I'm just like, you know, getting my feet wet, just starting the process with this. But when I went to all what you're saying, when I went to Fantasia Film Festival this year with um, the short that I produced, Bad Acid, I was just totally blown away. They had two roundtables there. So another shout out to Fantasia. That's amazing um, for the filmmakers. One was Meet the Financiers and one was Meet the Sales Agents. And I was just shocked that, yeah, there are financiers that were in Estonia and uh, Belgium and Germany that all were were there searching for projects that could either film in their countries or do post-production there. And it was starting, my producer brain was getting very excited of like, okay, you can get the tax credit from Estonia for X amount of money by doing just post there um, or by filming you know, 30% of your movie there or something like that. And I just didn't, I had no idea that these kinds of things were going on. Um, so just another reason to go to film festivals like La Femme uh, and to just go to some of these roundtables because you never know, because now I've just got, you know, a little spreadsheet of, okay, if I ever need to film something in Belgium or I have a connect or a script that's from there, uh, now I have that kind of direct connect. But I do remember they were talking about since it's based in Montreal, that there's some difficulty with the treaty between the U.S. and Canada. Do you know anything about that, Jonathan, that I'd love to hear about? I don't, I believe there is no treaty. That's the problem. That's the problem. Okay. So, yeah. it's, so it's hard to do U.S.-Canadian productions? or It's not hard to do it. You just can't maximize your, your taxes people want. Okay. And anticipate it. You, we can do up here. If you were to bring me a project and can we come on as a production supplier, essentially, um, you can get up to a maximum of about, I think it's 25% of your tax credit back. But in Canada, if we own and control the production, we could push that number up significantly, like 35% or something like 38 if you're doing a bunch of digital um, production on it, which is kind of absurd when you really think about the amount of money that's flowing back in yeah. tax credits. 
There's a lot of companies that do have a treaty with Canada, like Australia, and you can do like a U.S. to Australia to Canada kind of thing. Right. Um, people do that. I think probably France might, you know, there, there are a lot of those kinds of things where the U.S. sort of, you know, comes in for a variety of reasons, but, you know, and can work with Canada a little differently, too. Maybe so Estonia co-pro with Canada. You just have to make sure, like, even with states or with countries, that, you know, if it's something to finish the film, that they have the, you know, the people that can properly do that, you know, so. Right. right. You know, that, I mean, that would be my concern, but I think that, you know, these days, you know, there's so many, you know, great people all over the place. Maybe, you know, maybe it's, you know, not such an issue, so. Um, you know, I want to open this up to some questions from the audience right now. So, um, you know, does anybody have any questions or? Well, while we're waiting for uh, questions to come in, I just wanted to add one thing about minimum guarantees. And from my, you know, from my perspective, uh, I see, uh, uh, you know, working with clients on distribution deals and, and what I'm seeing for a variety of, of independent films is no minimum guarantees on the distribution side. Um, the films that have gotten some minimum guarantees, and I'm talking, you know, a nominal amount, uh, have been the genre films, the horror films, the action films, the thriller films. Uh, if you're making a drama or a comedy or a romantic comedy, um, you're pretty much going to end up looking at a revenue share type of uh, distribution arrangement. So just be aware of that. Um, the market has changed dramatically. Uh, it continues to change. Uh, so, uh, you know, in your forecasting and modeling and proposals, just be aware of what the reality is. Um, I've seen, uh, you know, a lot of people, when there was a box office, uh, mm -hmm. once upon a time, you know, the, the, the business plans that I would see would always see a distribution rate of 50%. But the reality is for independent films, the distribution rate is a return of 30 to 38% of the box office. It's not 50%, which means that all the modeling in that business plan or that disclosure statement is not accurate, um, and which that means is that if you have an unhappy investor, you may have a, a violation of securities law. So. Well, I have a question that just came in. It said, when you have a package to film and you're looking for investors, how is the best way to go and doing a security offering with that type of project? Well, either hire a securities lawyer, one, uh, or, you know, I would certainly explore the WeFunder uh, uh, platform. Uh, okay. Um, can you talk more about repaying investors? Can you limit how long they will get um, until they get their profits? Yeah, that's all structured in the paperwork that you build with the investors. Um, I can say, because we're currently in that for a completely different business. It is within film, but it's more of a distribution um, scenario. 
with that, you have to be obviously very transparent with the investors and they have to be comfortable with the level of risk, but you can build like the, the debt equity financing kind of model that we're looking at. We're using safes, um, uh, safe paperwork, which essentially allows us to raise capital against the future equity of the company without having to put a valuation on it right away, which I think for something like films, as you're starting to raise capital to put together those little pieces actually might be a very wise strategy. We've only, I only did a deep dive on this about three or four months ago when we started working on the, with the lawyers with this, but I think that might be an option for filmmakers to look at because I haven't really seen anybody doing that yet. I'm sure you've seen safes for other um, uh, projects than that. It's just a simple, simplified agreement for future equity. It doesn't require you to have any kind of valuation in the company. Now, say if you want to raise 1.5 million and you end up raising two and a half million and the people are investing on a $1.5 million film, how is your next tranche going to work? Well, with a piece of paper like this, you don't actually have to worry so much about that because you're budgeting against the entire raise that comes up. Anybody else have anything to add or? Um, how much does a security lawyer cost? Is there a percentage that is typical for that cost? So can you do that? You, can you say, I'm gonna give you a percentage or, you know, what did, I mean, Dan, you probably know this more cause you're an attorney, so. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of lawyers out there. Uh, it just depends where you are, what market you're in. Um, legal rates are all subject to negotiation. Um, some lawyers will charge you hourly. Some lawyers will charge you a uh, flat fee. Some lawyers may do it on a percentage basis. Um, it just depends. Uh, I want to jump in, Deb, real quick on that question that popped up about structuring, um, repaying investors and so on, if I may. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> um, basically, there are a variety of different structures, but like for me, one that I like to use is you have a lawyer set up a, you know, your LLC, which of course you then do have to pay $800 in all eternity, even when your movie's not making money and it drives you crazy. But, um, you know, ways around that would be nice. But basically, well, Las Ve Vegas, Nevada. There, yeah, there you go. Um, but basically the way I've usually structured things is that I share 50% of the profits with whoever the investor is. Um, usually what I'll do is I'll break that up a little funky though. It's not 50, 50 because you're, you know, you're giving participation to different people along the way, whether it's actors or anyone, you know, that might come along but I work it out to about 50% with my investors. And then what I do in general is give them their ability to recoup off first money in and then up to 15 or 20% of that. Um, and then once they've completely recouped, then we go to that 50-50 recuperation model. Um, so that's how that goes. So when the question is how long do they get profits, it's kind of a negotiation. You can strike a deal, which is you get your money back till you get 20%. Then you start collecting at 5% or, you know, you just create different versions of that depending on who the, they are. But um, that's, you know, they can be getting their money back forever. 
um, depending on what kind of deal you strike. But, you know, they are taking a risk investing in your movie. So you kind of want to give them the opportunity to, you know, recoup forever if your movie is wildly successful. That's been a win or they can lose with you and have a nice tax write off. But I think you probably want to give them forever to recoup. Mm -hmm. Anybody else want to share about this? Or? Yeah, I think what I'm seeing, and once again, um, if you hop on the WeFunder site and you go to films um, and see the films that have raised already, I think you can see all of the different films terms, which is great for the most part. So that can give you a bunch of different ideas, but they all pretty much have landed in this 120 or 110% of the principal, what they put in. What is nice is I have seen on WeFunder like early bird term. So while you're trying to raise that first like major $100,000, you can you can give them a little bit more of an incentive, which is usually about 120% of their investment versus 110. Um, but most films I've seen have done the 50-50 split and uh, and in perpetuity um, that they'll they're they're in it for the long haul for the profits. Which is cool because that does rep you know, kind of reflect the real world of bigger investing, where you may have first money in, first money out, last money in, first money out. You know, there are all these different deals that if you do need like your gap and so on and so forth, you can strike different deals. So it's kind of cool that they incentivize the first hundred thousand yeah. and so on. Cause that's, you know, it just seems like it's a scaled down version of, you know, what, it, what we're talking about in other investments. Any other thoughts about this? Any other, any questions? You know, any more questions from the audience or, you know? Let's see. I mean, it's the standard is what has been discussed, which is, uh, you know, the investor gets their money back plus, a, uh, you know, a, an override of anywhere from 10 to 20%, sometimes 25%, and then it's a 50-50 split. But uh, on one, one picture, we had someone who was coming in initially as uh, an investor and at the last minute wanted to do it as debt, as a loan. Uh, so the promissory note actually had a kicker of 20% of uh, on top of the, uh, the, the loan. So, you know, everything's negotiable. But just remember, if you're raising a lot of money and there's going to be a lot of investors, if you give one investor one thing, um, you may have issues with your other investors. And you don't want to give your early investors so much that you can't give your later investors something as well. Um, so, again, try and put together a good team of advisors and uh, and. Make sure you plan out your actions before you actually jump into the swimming pool. One thing I would recommend, just because no one's asking questions, is uh, just build a spreadsheet of all the money you want to bring in, what percentages you want to give out, so you can actually see what you're giving away. I find a lot of people, they kind of do it on a napkin because they're in a conversation, everybody's really excited. But before you get to that deal, you should already have in your mind what your battle plan is. And that's the only way that uh, we've been able to actually close the deals that we close. Right. Okay. Um, do you recommend going through angel investors um, group or uh, for funding? Are they um, 
worth the money it might cost to, you know, to join? Well, any time you can meet rich people, it's a good time. <laughs> but having said that, what I, the concern I have about angel investor groups and investment clubs is they really are looking not for sizzle, but for return on their investment. And to try and go and sell a film as a good return on investment is a, is a tough sell. I mean, uh, even if you have the best of everything, and I say one word, Amsterdam, you still are not going to make money. Um, so though they may be a great place to meet people who are investing, but they may not be the best source of investors for people in, in movies just because they're really looking for a return on their investment. And movies are really highly speculative. Um, so again, if I, when I go looking for money, I try and find the people who are donating to museums, operas, theaters, um, you know, even the people who are on some of the PBS mastheads. Um, or, you know, again, IMDb Pro, look at the executive producers on films that you like. Those are people who paid money to have their name as an executive producer. See if you can track them down. That's how I found an investor for my film, Eight Wins. I had met the person. He had executive produced another film that I had seen. And I said to him, hey, you know, I know you from such and such. I see you invested in this film. Would you have any interest in investing in my film? He said, yeah, let's talk about it. And he did write a check. So, again, uh, and again, so the other point about finding money, looking may not look in the most obvious place to find investors. So if you're in Hollywood in California, not really a great place to look for investors in movies. I'm sure there are some, but when you go to other states where they're not the mecca of Hollywood, the idea of investing in a movie may be far more uh, um exciting than somebody who lives in California. So, you know, there was a survey done where they listed all the states that had the most millionaires. And I think New Hampshire had <laughs> most millionaires. Hawaii has the most millionaires. So again, Dubai has the most millionaires. <laughs> you know, be creative in where you're, where you're looking and don't assume that, uh, you know, just because people are in the business, they'll invest in the film. Also, if you, I find attorneys are excellent sources of clients with money, um, financial planners, you know, when I, whenever I talk to my stockbroker, I'm always like, so do you have any clients who want to put money into movies? Um, you know, that's another way to go. Attorneys, financial planners, um, you know, anybody who works with wealth, um, you know, and when I say wealth, there's obviously different levels, um, but I think that that's a good a good sort of place to go. Okay. Um, so we have another question from Chloe Owens and she's saying, I'd love to hear more about how investors might limit you if you are the writer and director of the film. Just like the first question, so. Well, there's a, there's a, a saying there are angel investors and there are devil investors. <laughs> Um, if you're talking to somebody and they're already saying, well, I have this girlfriend and she should be the star of the film, 
you know, that's kind of a red flag. Um, you know, and just because they're willing to write you a check doesn't mean that you necessarily should accept it if you're getting, you know, too much interest and control or they're going to say, well, uh, I'll invest in your film, but my dog has to be in it. Or, you know, I'll invest in your film, uh, but, uh, you know, I want to get X, Y, Z. Um, be careful uh, in making those kinds of deals because uh, if that's where they're starting, I, it may escalate to the point where you're going to have a very unhappy, unhappy experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, your question about who has the final say on the final edit, it's going to not like, you know, an investor, it just depends on who your investor is. If your cousin who has money, you cannot give them the final say and you can't give equity a final say, but a distributor may have a final say because they know what they can sell. A production company who is doing the funding, if that is who your investor is, will have a final say. I mean, in my case with my editor, it was that it was a certain a particular kind of movie. There were very few editors who actually could do that. It was the, that kind of editing that was required. It was the middle of COVID. And by all rights, we should have, um, we should have been done a lot sooner. And I was kind of pulling my hair out because when you're editing a movie and this is, you know, happening a lot now is everyone's working on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I shot an entire movie on Zoom at one point and I had big stars in it. I had Ashley Judd was in it. And literally I had a team, she was in um, Nashville and I was in LA and I had my crew there and I was directing them, you know, almost the way you would, you know, from a control room and TV, but we did a movie that way. Um, and it had, you know, I, I will say, God bless humankind, we are resilient and figure out how to do things during a global pandemic. However, you know, you have to take into account the frustrations of time delays, Zoom delays, seconds here and there. And with this particular editor, I had a lot of problems because, you know, you have to then, when you're making movie, render. And so when you're rendering something and you're trying to work together and you're not exactly, there was a language barrier, there were a lot of things. Um, but everybody thought we would have been done a lot sooner and they just, that was the situation. So he who writes the check decides pretty much everything, even though they say they're trusting you, um, you know, even in general, and that kind of goes for everything. I know Deb, you and I deal with that a lot when we are, you know, we are distribution strategists, but sometimes people want us to be distribution implementers. So if I'm saying to somebody, this is the strategy you should really follow, to get your film out there, they may say, yeah, that sounds good, but this is what I really want. So go do this. And <laughs> they're paying us to do it. It's kind of like I've given you my advice, but if this is what you want, okay. Um, here's a question that came from, you know, from this, my cell phone is, is there a way that you, like, let's say somebody is going to finance your Put money is there any way that you can limit the amount of inputs that they have based on can you do that in a contract or you know can you finesse that how can you do that well one way to do that is in structuring the llc so uh, normally 
general members, um, I mean, who were limited partnerships, which is what the vehicle that was used in the old days. Limited partners had no um, hands-on or operational responsibilities or entitlements. So to replicate that in an LLC, I usually set up two classes of memberships. There's the managing members who actually manage and execute the day-to-day -day operations, including production of the film. And then there are investor members who only invest and the investor members have no right to uh, operate the business. So that's usually done contractually. And again, if you're dealing with an investor who's saying up front, I wanna have final cut, then you may be dealing with a devil investor and you really need to think hard about um, if that's the person you wanna be in business with. Right. Anybody have anything to add on this? Yeah, I think you can, yeah, what Dan was saying, you can be pretty clear in the contracts. I would make sure definitely have legal, have a legal person, have them look over everything. Um, but I will say in my experience thus far, and maybe it's because a lot of them aren't in the film industry, a lot of my investors, they've they've been super supportive. And when we do what we did do and we do on the platform, our perks. So you can make very clear, like if you're putting in X amount of money, um, you can go to the premiere. If you're putting in X amount of money, you are an associate producer. And what that means is you get that credit. You get that credit and you list out exactly. You list out that credit you're getting on IMDb and that credit you're getting in the credits, you know, and, and being that clear and do everything with a fine tooth comb because my fellow panelists know that when it comes to screen credits, that's a whole other and a single card, you know, that is of, of having your name on the film. There's only so much time that you can have single cards for people. And that is negotiated with everyone that you have on the movie talent specifically. That's a whole other panel on single cards. But uh, <laughs> um, but being really, really specific with exactly what those things mean. And if you're clear that an associate producer is thus and this is what you get out of it. Um, you can avoid that. But I think that's it's a really good point to make everything as clear as possible. And it is different when you're working, because I've heard that with production companies and with distributors that really look at those contracts, because if they have final say in the edit, which I think most distributors do, or you put a clause in there that they can, um, you have to be ready for that. And you have to be ready as a producer, director, writer to, you know, kill those darlings if you have to, to sell the film. Anything else on this or, you know, here's, okay, so I have one other question that just came in and it is, um, do you know of any brokerage houses that specialize in film funding, even though it's risky? Brokerage houses, no. I mean, other than the WeFunder, most offerings are what are called private placement memorandums. They're usually done not through brokers. I mean, the problem with brokers is if you hire a brokerage, uh, they're going to take a piece of the of the of the results of the the raise. Um, and again, depending on the amount of money you're trying to raise, if it's under a certain level, you're probably not going to have much success with a, a brokerage even if there were one willing to do it, um, just because there isn't enough money for them to get involved. So uh, you need to really do your homework on determining the size of the raise and the most efficient way to do that. But again, there, there really aren't brokers that, that do it. Again, 
Uh, most of the, the fundraising that is done on the independent level is usually done through friends and family and networking. There's private placement memorandums where the number of investors is can be limited if they're not accredited, can be unlimited if they're accredited. Um, but, you know, when it, there are certain, in the old days, well, there were significant offerings done for movies. Uh, their Dune partnerships did significant raises where they're raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in equity to invest in slates of films at the studios. And in that case, brokerages were involved. But again, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's a lot of pork to go around and feed all the mouths that need to get fed on raising a substantial sum like that. If you're only trying to raise a few hundred thousand dollars or a million or a couple million dollars, again, I, it may not be a large enough sum to bring in a brokerage. Uh, okay, here's another question. What is the best way of approaching a co-production deal, the do's and don'ts? Well, again, the word co-production. So when I hear co-production, I'm usually thinking of co-productions between countries. And um, if you're in America, there are no co-production deals because we don't have any treaties with anybody that gives us any access to co-production. So if you're joining a, a co-production as you're working with another producer or production company, uh, then it's all contractual. So whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you can negotiate and whatever they bring to the table that, that fills the gap in your, your financing puzzle will be what you're negotiating over. So again, it'd be all spelled out by contract. Anybody else want to weigh in or? Get as much as you can and give as little as possible away. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, Jonathan said something about earlier when talking about this topic was about um, added value. Um, you know, you want to work with somebody or an entity that brings something you don't have. Um, you know, and that, that at the end of the day is the most important is what are you getting from them? What are you bringing and what are you giving up to get it? Um, you know, that, that probably is the biggest co-production questions I would want to address anybody else or i mean i mean just the most simplest simplest terms is like are they the right fit uh, are the different groups going to work together because there's so much risk already in film so if you know the personalities are going to clash from your first you know couple meetings is it really worth the stress when it's so such a challenge to put up any production. And that is an answer you need to know going into every single one of these conversations before you even start kind of looking at how to put those partnerships together. Yeah, and to that end, I, I'd go back to, yes, making sure you get along with everybody and thinking about the best case and worst case scenarios. Um, you know, I can't remember, I think I'm 15 years into Cinderella story from when we did our first and we've done six sequels. So those same people that I started with 15 years ago, I've, you know, I'm working with still in the best case scenario that we, you know, have 
you know, six movies, but life changes, times change, people change. Um, but you could be in for the long haul and, you know, a lot of excitement as I think Jonathan said, you write something on a napkin because you're all at lunch and you have this amazing idea and you're, you're writing it on your napkin. And then suddenly 15 years later, you've been in business with these people. You, you really want to make sure that you, you take care of all of the, you know, I have lawyers that always watch out for the worst case scenarios for me, but look out for the best case scenarios too. Okay, I've got another question that came in. Um, is it any easier raising $2 million than it is raising $30,000 or $300,000? Sorry, Mr. Zero. <laughs> Anybody have a thought so on this? $2 million versus $300,000, that was the question? Right. I mean, I will say, I think going forward, what I've learned from all, all of the we funders that I've done in my previous projects is it is nice. The, the blessing of having 200 investors is I have a audience, right, for, for both of my films, which is huge. And that is really helpful of people that are super uh, invested. Um, but I do think as I'm getting into films that are now a million and above, it would be really lovely if I had like two or three investors, right? So I think if you can break it down into um, the offerings that you're doing is like, you know, having people come in, let's say it's a million dollar film. So where's the math there? Five, $200,000 investors. That would be great. So that you are, you're just, you're, you're tightening the pool a little bit. Um, so I do think there's an advantage of having, a, a smaller pool of investors and having them have higher stakes in the film. Um, is it easier? I don't think, I don't think so. It's just different. It's just finding those five people or five to 10 people that are going to make your movie and making sure not unlike the co-production that you all are on the same page, that you know what you want to make. Um, it's probably more manageable than managing 300 investors. <laughs> I don't know right, well, that's true. Yeah, unless you have a really good personality. <laughs> and you like I, I crowds. Just, <laughs> I, can, I can step in on that from, from doing that both with different types of goods um, and also with film. I, you'll find that when you're going for lower level investors or people who are comfortable in lower levels of investment, they have less money to invest, which means they have more at risk. So if you're going to have more headaches down the road, it'll be with people that have less money. So that's a consideration when you're building your financial modeling and who you're approaching. And if you don't think of that when you're doing like a $30,000 film, say for instance, you have a friend who can write you a check for $30,000 for your $30,000 film. They're probably driving a $150,000 car. That's a good investor. If it's a friend that's driving a Toyota that's 30 years old and they're going to write you a check for a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars, don't take it. That's all I'm going to say because it's going to be a nightmare and you're going to lose a friend. Yeah, I also think when you're you're calculating the budget of your film, it takes just as much work to produce a potential $30,000 film as it is a $3 million film. I mean, I, I have somebody who I'm working with who asked me to exec produce a film for them. And it's like $800,000, which 
perfectly respectable budget under a variety of circumstances um, or for this film. But I said to them, how am I going to get paid? It's going to take me just as much work to get you the packaging, whether I'm packaging A-list or B-list, you know, or C-list. It's You still have to make the same amount of phone calls, the same amount of outreach and have the same conversations. So I'd rather make a $3 million film where there's money in it for me to actually make than a third, you know, an $800,000 film that may have more upside later, but at the same time for me where I am, it just depends on your emotional passion investment in that particular film, the work you're doing and so on. I think, you know, you, you still have to do that same amount of footwork on a lower budget film as you do a higher budget film. So, you know, keep that in mind as well. Right. I agree. You know, totally. Anybody else want to weigh in or you know, you know, you know, I'm just going to throw in something just to go back to the, um, you know, to um, the casting aspect. So, you know, um, like I was making a movie, you know, years ago and it was an action movie and, you know, like, and we were financing it through, you know, foreign sales and things like that. And, in that case, you know, somebody like Dolph Lundgren was much more valuable than Kevin Costner to kicking in the financing. So if you're going to be going through like an AFM type of situation, um, you know, you have to, you know, there's going to be a difference like studio casting and like the AFM type of casting are oftentimes very different. So, you know, that's like another thing. Sometimes a TV name in certain you know, companies or certain countries might be more valuable than a film name. So it's like you kind of have to educate yourself on those aspects as well. Law um, and Order does really well in Europe. <laughs> and if you get some of those names, that is actually better than a movie star here sometimes. Right, exactly. You know, the other thing also, Deb, to that end is genre. Um, I had some clients in Canada who were, you know, putting together a slate of films and said to me, which film should we do first? And I kind of counseled them on doing, you know, horror movies and holiday movies. And they had a Christmas movie. And I said, make your Christmas movie first, because every year you're going to get more money from that movie. And that will fill mm -hmm. your company and show success. And, and literally, I think they made that movie in 2016 and they, you know, are still getting checks every year from that movie. So if you, you know, think about things like that, you know, what are the movies that make the most money at the end of the day? Well, even for Jonathan, like poor Agnes, like horror genre, very like, um, you know, it's also very easy to publicize as well because there's a gazillion outlets that love to cover, you know, that kind of genre. So um, no, another, go ahead, go ahead, sweetie. Uh, when, when we look at projects, and this is from the start of the, the company, it's like we're an audience first company. So the only projects that we do is a project we either are one of the audience members being horror films like myself, uh, or we can understand, truly understand where that audience is coming from. Like there's a connection somewhere because otherwise it's incredibly difficult to really realize the potential of the script and the marketplace for the script. And so when we did Poor Agnes, I literally was looking at, because I had been running that, um, independent cinema like those couple of independent cinemas and booking a lot of horror building up the horror community and i was like there's a massive massive desire for certain types of products so let's just create that product and that's 
how that happened. And that's why the film connected, I see, I think connected so well with the audience, one of the reasons. Mm. So anyway, I wanna, you know, we're kind of coming to the end of this. So I just wanna ask each of the panelists to share like, you know, the best or, you know, the best experience, you know, that they've had on, you know, one of their projects and, you know, why. So let's start with Des. Oh, on the spot. No, it, it comes immediately. Um, we were doing my divorce party. Uh, that was a seedling in our brains. And I found the amazing shout out to Heidi Weitzer, our brilliant writer, director, producer. Uh, in 2020, this all began after fundraising, raising all that money. We shot in Joshua Tree. And there's a big uh, strip club scene because we're celebrating my character's divorce party. And we turned this amazing um 29 palms bar into a strip club which is just there's, there's no strip clubs out there we had dancers from we had to find local dancers from joshua tree and 29 palms so it's like the funniest funniest dancers and very niche very niche world but um when all when everything came together and you we did we do a montage in the movie of you know, all the girls are trying to spend the settlement money and uh, we're just throwing fake money around in this bar and you've got the party. It's just seeing it all come together. You're like, this is why we do it. And it's really, really fun. So that was great. Jonathan. <laughs> I think you'll appreciate this, Deborah. When I was flying down to uh, dances and films and I was going through customs on the U.S. side of the border, <clears throat> the customs agent was asking me, you know, what are you flying down for? I told him. And he's like, and I'm like, oh, so what films have you done? You know, blah, 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 I like films too. And I told him about poor Agnes because we had to premiere the other one. He's like, oh yeah, the one about the serial killer. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome. <laughs> it was ridiculous. That was uh, very, very gratifying. It was fun. Lissa? Um, I'm going to say two. The first one is that with Cinderella story, when we made our deal and suddenly after five, five years of uh, development on a film, suddenly attaching some elements that turn it into something that was part of a Hollywood bidding war um, and getting to have that level of control and power as to choose who you're going to work with um, and then getting a signing bonus. So that is definitely on a big picture, but as a on a personal level, as a creator, um, I was making, you know, I came up with the idea for the standoff and, you know, we did all the work of raising the money, putting it together. And I was very, very passionate about that. It was certainly much smaller. It was a half million dollar movie and I directed it and I was producing it and I walked out of the bathroom, which happened to be on, an, it was a, uh, you know, a trailer that was elevated and I walk out of the bathroom and I see my entire set. And I look around and I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> this is like an amazing, they are here because of something I did. There is an entire, you know, there's 10 actors over there. There's this going on. Everybody's employed in Hollywood, which is exciting, you know, to see. And all I thought was, holy shit, I kind of did this. And it wasn't like arrogant. It was just humbling because it's like, whoa. Um, and so walking out of a bathroom on my movie set was probably mm -hmm. the best moment I had, like being in a strip club. <laughs> it's always fun. Um, Dan? <laughs> well, you know, I, I got to say every movie has been a great experience. Um, you always learn something. 
Um, it's always fascinating to see the dynamics of people working under under oftentimes stressful conditions. Um, you know, I, I think the most rewarding experience is, for me is is probably my my most recent film, Eight Wins, um, just because I said I was going to do it and I did it, and it's out there, and that's a success. It's great. I so, throw in one more little bit to that, Deb, if you don't mind. Of course. All of these glorious moments that we're giving you, all of us, we all have how hard we worked to get those things happening and the behind the scenes things that we all do to get there that nobody really sees. And the heavy lifting is so heavy. And I just remember like even going, you know, editing one of these movies, at, you know, with the standoff. My kids were saying, I had six month old twins at the time. And it's like one of my, I've got this picture of me with my, you know, baby son bouncing them on my lap as I'm editing. And it's like all of those things. And it's like, oh my God, this is the hardest thing I ever did. Because every moment of all of these movies is so hard. And so there, there's joyous things that we remember are, are there because it took so much to get to. No, I, you know, definitely. I agree. I mean, from my perspective, from like a publicist, you know, I would say, you know, when my clients really get great outreach, you know, on, and we get transactions from the PR or, you know, people get a great placement, like in a deadline or, you know, like, or if I'm doing an FYC campaign, like, you know, a few years ago, I got a satellite award nomination for them. So, you know, there's like, you know, different things as a distribution strategist. If we get a good deal for somebody and they get a, some money up front, or we know that they have, um, you know, a distributor that's really energetic, you know, or just, you know, just in, for me, it's just in terms of like, you know, how, you know, my clients, you know, benefit from what I'm doing for them. But I would say also, you know, on films and stuff, I think that, you know, that if it's, if I'm really happy and proud of the production, you know, or, you know, like, I mean, but, you know, as they've all said, it's an enormous amount of work, you know, to, you know, like, I mean, you know, you'll have your happy moment afterwards, but, you know, nobody can believe, like, I have a friend who's closing financing now, and every day it's like a big drama, you know, and so, but, you know, those, that's how you know it's really happening, I think, so. Does anybody else have anything they'd like to share before we end today? And, you know, I really want to thank, you know, all the people that, you know, have tuned in this morning and, you know, and the panelists, Jonathan, you know, thank you for, you know, coming back to us three hours earlier. Desi, Alyssa, and Dan, thank you for, you know, such great um, wisdom and experience and energy and enthusiasm. And Leslie, thank you for providing this great festival. And, you know, anybody, you know, like, and just feel free, like, always to, you know, reach out, you know, when you guys have questions, so. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We've got uh, new and exciting interviews coming up for the rest of our continuing podcast of Best and Fest. For those that want to see the video component, you can tap into the YouTube channel on La Femme International Film Festival, La Femme Film Festival. And don't forget to uh, like us and pass us on to all your friends who are interested in learning more about making film and television content. 
Best and Fest, we're out.